Hello, I'm Kevin Ellis, Chairman and Senior Partner of PwC in the UK and Middle East. Welcome to our Business Leaders in Conversation mini-series, where we have our CEOs from a variety of industries how they're shaping their companies to meet the challenges of the future. In this final episode, I'm joined by Tim Steiner, who's a co-founder and CEO of Ocado, the FTSE 100 online supermarket. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. And um, thanks so much for joining us. So if I think about your journey personally and your success personally, it's so intrinsically linked to Ocado. Back in 2000, you and two colleagues from Goldman Sachs set up a business. And from there, over the last 19 years, that business has evolved. Um, it's been like a roller coaster with you right at the heart of it. As a leader, what have been the key ingredients that you've put down to your success? Look, I think the key to our success has possibly been, you know, a combination of things, resilience. So we believed in what we were doing. And for a number of the 19 years we were doing it, a lot of people thought we were mad. I guess we had to have thick skin to keep going uh, throughout their negativity. And sometimes I think people get influenced too much by outside parties. And I think it would be easy sometimes just to throw the towel in. I've been fortunate to be working with a phenomenal team here who also believed in what we were doing. And together, we just kept going. And so actually that's been a part of our success in that because it was widely believed to be the wrong thing to be doing, we were the only person doing it. And so now we emerge 19 years later as the world leader in our field, and suddenly our field is acknowledged by the global grocery industry to be the future. We have more knowledge than anybody. And so that's put us in a very unique space. And obviously, you know, had it been a fashionable space for 19 years, there would probably be a bunch of other people who had spent 19 years playing and experimenting in it. And it's interesting looking at that kind of journey, you must have regularly had to kind of course correct. Did you have the opportunity to sit down with your team and say, I think this is where the market's going, let's move there? Or were you influenced by um, other parties outside or other major events? I, I mean, I'm not sure we've course corrected that many times, to be honest. We just try to plow through. What we've sometimes done is hit a wall and, you know, had six or 12 months where we've not made as much progress as we'd like to while we try and hack our way through it. And those are the times when it could be easy for people to lose faith and think it's impossible but it's not, you just have to work your way through them. I don't really think it's course correct. What we have had to do sometimes is speed up or slow down. And was the switch from say being a major player in the B2C market to the B2B market, was that kind of one of the big kind of inflection points in the life of the business? Um, I, I'm not sure it was a kind of a massive inflection point as such. So we were building a business over the first say 10 years where we very much experimenting doing a great job for our retail customers and learning a lot. And we started to get recognized as a leader in our field. And a lot of people internationally tried to learn what we were doing. And for a number of years, we took the view that we weren't the you know, open university of grocery retailing. We hadn't spent our shareholders' money and our energy to teach an industry how to work for the industry's benefit. It needed to be for our stakeholders' benefit. And so we were quite secretive. We hit a few roadblocks or walls around that time that were incredibly hard to work our way through and we got through. And what we realized when we got through was that we had solved some very, very complex problems and the business had moved on a bit. To start with, we felt that understanding the problems was the harder part than solving them. 
And it was why we didn't file any patents in our early days. Because when you file a patent, you say, this is a problem I've identified and here's my solution that you can't use. But we felt there were other solutions and that our competitors didn't even understand the problems. We got to the point where the problems and the solutions were both immensely complex. And we decided to open our doors and not be so secretive that actually showing people would teach them something, but would not teach them enough. One of the things it would teach them was that we knew more than anybody about what we were doing. And in the space of about 18 months, I think we counted that we had over 50 global retailers who approached us through global investment banks, through the global consumer uh, brand companies, uh, through global consultancy firms, who we knew who would call us and say, we've got this retailer in Brazil, this retailer in China, this retailer in Australia or wherever it was, who's been talking to us about online and how it's going to change their market. And we've said, you're the world leader in it. And they said, could they you know, make an introduction? And they all came to see us. And we weren't sure exactly how we wanted to help them or how we could help them. We just knew that we could help them and that we could forge a business out of that. And it was during that time that we ended up initially helping Morrisons. We ended up doing our first kind of partnership deal, helping Morrisons to launch Morrisons.com. Thanks. And if you, you've been eventful 19 years, if you look forward, say five to 10 years, how do you see the grocery industry changing on the back of what you've achieved today and what you see at the moment? I mean, I think it's changing now at a more rapid pace than it has done over the last 19 years. And I think that's a huge opportunity for us. I think that the consumer change, you know, even in the most developed markets like the UK, it's still a single digit percentage of the UK grocery market that's online. And I think it has the potential in the next 10 to 20 years to become the mainstream channel. So I think we've got a massive amount of global channel shift. The market globally is, we estimate somewhere north of four trillion pounds a year. So you know, if globally the market shifts, it's just an enormous, enormous opportunity. And I suppose just like the learnings from effectively kind of opening up uh, the business to show other people your business model, those same learnings from the retail industry will effectively ignite change across lots of other industries. So your four trillion is just the retail space. I'd imagine there's so many other kind of adjacent learnings or adjacent technology breakthroughs that you'll be at the forefront of. Um, so our four trillion is actually just the grocery industry. Yeah. It's not even the retail industry. In a country like the UK, grocery retail is about 175 billion pounds a year. It's 50% of total retail. And if you think that the UK is somewhere between three and 4% of global GDP, you can then kind of back out the size of the, of the market. You know, the US market is about a trillion dollars, for example. So there's a huge change there. And yes, certain things that will be developed to make this industry work have got application elsewhere. And in our recent results, we spoke about um, some kind of spin-off type opportunities where technologies that we've developed primarily to solve a challenge in grocery, we can see have got great applicability in other fields. And we kind of were... Uh, um, letting our stakeholders know in advance that we've actually have been spending a bit of time and money on some of those. We're not just changing the way the world shops, we're changing the way that we store, sort, move atoms as opposed to just groceries, if you see what I mean. So yeah. some things might be much bigger than groceries and some things might be alive, for example, or, or, or you know, this might be more interesting than groceries in some way. And also, I'd say, in a world where we're all kind of looking over our shoulder at disruptors, you know, what you're talking about there puts your brand right at the heart of disruption across all industries. Look, I think um, 
from the beginning, we, we weren't looking to do one thing better than our competitors. We were looking to be able to disrupt everything that we do. So to be able to be a disruption house rather than, you know, so rather than having one thing that we've worked out to actually constantly improve and constantly disrupt in everything that we do and to create that as part of the core culture of the business. And therefore, at some point, a spin-off of that can go and disrupt things outside of grocery. And for this to be successful and to grow, obviously, it comes down to people. How have you done in terms of retaining talent and also in terms of being able to take on board the talent you need to achieve and execute on your plan? Look, talent, of course, is extremely important and critical to any business, especially ours. We are fortunate in uh, a number of ways in that we have been an innovator and talented people prefer to work for an innovator than a follower. We're also not frightened to try new things as the innovator, so they get to work on exciting projects. And I think also good talent attracts good talent. So if you can create a good talent pool, then you become a place that other talent wants to work. So we've been very successful. It requires a lot of effort and a lot of thought, and it's something we have to keep working on every day. If you took Ocado Technology as an example, when we did the deal with Morrisons in 2013, we had 300 people in Ocado Technology. We're over 1,300 today, and we'll probably add 300 this year. So it's a growing area for us, and we've had to expand overseas as well in order to attract as much talent at the levels of talent that we want. And we now have um, overseas offices, two in Poland, one in Bulgaria, and one in Spain. Um, but at the very top level of business, we've had very low very, very low turnover, which on the one hand, it's great um, because it means that you're not losing a lot of knowledge that you've built up over the years and everybody knows each other and the dynamic works well. On the other hand, it doesn't create as many opportunities for up and coming people. What's compensated in our case is obviously our growth has created a lot of new opportunities just because we're growing business all the time. So are there certain pools of talent, graduates or school leavers or certain countries where you focus on for recruiting the talent that you need? No, I think we're not as established as a business like yours in in the employment model as such. Every year we've taken more and more graduates and try to develop more of our own talent rather than trying to kind of almost poach people two or three years into someone, you know, been working for someone else's business who's taught, who's increased their understanding, talent and skills, et cetera. I suppose, as you say, as your profile's raised, you know, FTSE 100 company, that obviously becomes a magnet for talent by its very nature. You know, the kind of FTSE 100 piece, to some extent, is not necessarily a magnet to some of the talent that we're looking for, because actually the startup is yeah. is often what they're looking to. So it's critical that we remain very entrepreneurial and startup in nature and actually don't become an old-fashioned FTSE 100. The talent pool that we're looking for are confident in their own talent, and they want to work somewhere that's exciting, that's innovating, that's changing. And so to some extent, I have to resist becoming too much like a FTSE 100, despite being a constituent of the FTSE 100. I suppose also the brand awareness does give you that bigger kind of uh, lighthouse view. That's a positive. The brand awareness piece is good, but you want to be competing. You know, we're competing for talent with startups and Facebook and Google. We don't want to be competing for talent with Sainsbury's and Tesco's. One of the challenges that regularly comes up in the press is around technology and trust. Um, Obviously, you've got a very trusted brand. How have you, what's your kind of uh, oversight to that trust brand? How have you built that trust brand around Ocado in spite of being at the forefront of technology and innovation? Look, we've always put our customers first. 
I think our customers know that. So that's at the expense of of short-term profitability, at the expense of you know market capitalization, at the expense of our own you know our own lives. We've always put our customers first. And if there's an issue in the warehouse, you know our staff from our head office would go there to pick because we're only as good as the last order we've delivered. Um, and I think that that rubs off in the trust spectrum overall, that we've done a good job for our customers. We try and turn up on time. We have, I think, the only fleet in the UK that has winter tires on it so that, you know, when we have snow in the UK, we can still deliver and get to our customers' houses. That just helps in them understanding who we are and what we're like in terms of thinking about the data they're entrusting us with. Having said that, we don't hold customers' bank details. Uh, we, in fact, don't hold the credit card details. So the external payment providers, the kind of globally recognized large payment providers, are actually people that host the, the credit card numbers. So we don't actually hold those ourselves. Um, we don't hold users' passwords either. We hold what's called a hash, which is a, a, an encrypted version of the passcode that's a one-way encryption. So the thing that we hold can't be unencrypted back to the user's passcode. So in, in the awful event that we were compromised in some way, the user's password would not be lost right, anyway, yeah. which is what a number of companies have fallen foul of. Um, and so I think we've, you know, we've been in a good place and we do take our data security very seriously. And as we're developing the new systems that we'll migrate our own business onto as well as run for our customers, we're spending an awful lot of time and energy on the, on the security and the encryption of all the customer data going forwards to make sure that it's as secure as can be. Thank you. So just thinking kind of before we close, what what are the main challenges you see for Ricardo in the next few years? Um, look, I think we have the same challenges as everybody. The world is changing very rapidly. You want to make sure that you're very relevant at the end of the change. So I think you can't rest on your laurels. And I think that we've been a business that's proved the adage that the biggest risk that you can take is not taking any risk. And I think it's really important that we take very sensible, calculated and substantial risk to make sure that we end up as a very relevant player in the future. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much for your time today, Tim. And uh, thanks for sharing your thoughts with us. Thank, Thank you. you very much for inviting me. Thank you to all of you who have followed this series. The diversity of challenges faced by business leaders is reflected in the conversations I have with our clients every day. But the topic that keeps coming up again and again, is a need for employers to upskill their people and equip them for the future. This upskilling is something that business has to play a key role in, and I know is front of mind for many CEOs, including myself. If you've enjoyed listening to Tim's views on the future challenges Ocado faces, listen to the rest of our business leaders in conversation and download the rest of the series on iTunes or SoundCloud. Thank you.